Hi, I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of King's College London and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, To Be Continued, Mullah Sadra on Existence. It may seem obvious that the greatest philosophers are the ones who break completely with the ideas of their predecessors. We might call this the Descartes syndrome, in honor of Descartes' claim to be starting from scratch, throwing aside the accumulated arguments of scholastic philosophy. But that's not what I think. I think that the great philosophers are, often as not, those who bring together and rethink the ideas they find in the previous tradition. Their originality consists in creative engagement, not creative destruction. They realize that synthesis is not a sin, that taking the historical long view is no shortcoming. It takes a great mind to weave together the loose strands of numerous intellectual traditions. We can observe this with Plato, who drew on all the currents of Greek science, literature, and philosophy up to his day, with Plotinus, whose so-called Neo-Platonism was in large part new because of its novel combination of themes from Middle Platonism, Stoicism, and Aristotelianism in Latin Christendom, with that great synthesist Thomas Aquinas, and, by the way, with Descartes, who owes far more to the scholastic tradition than he would like you to believe. In the later Islamic world, there is one figure who stands undisputed as master of the metaphysical medley, Mullah Sadra, whose lifespan actually overlapped with that of Descartes. Like the other thinkers I've just mentioned, Sadra was a thinker powerful enough to reshape earlier philosophical currents retrospectively, Before him, Illuminationism, Sufism, and later Avicennan philosophy did frequently cross paths, but usually remained distinct streams. Once these streams flowed together in the oceanic mind of Mullah Sadra, they suddenly could seem to be mere tributaries, finding at last the single destination that had been intended all along. This isn't to say that Sadra's contemporaries or immediate successors recognized him as a kind of new Avicenna, an indispensable thinker to whom they would all be forced to respond, but he was certainly influential in subsequent generations, and no philosopher of the Islamic world lives on in the modern day as vividly as Sadra, especially in Iran, where his works continue to be the subject of intense study. Scholars beyond Iran, too, have made him the most well-researched philosopher of the later Eastern traditions. Admittedly, this isn't saying much, given how little attention this whole period of philosophy has received. Sadra's actual name was Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Shirazi. The phrase Sadr ad-Din, which is the basis of his usual sobriquet Mullah Sadra, is an honorific title, meaning master of religion. As the last bit of his proper name, Ashirazi, indicates, he hailed from our new favorite philosophical city, Shiraz, where he was born in the year 1571 or 1572. That's the year 979 in the Islamic calendar, if you're keeping a score at home. It's said that he was born after his father prayed to God to send him a pious child, in return for which the father would donate a large amount to charity. He definitely got his money's worth. Despite the connection to Shiraz, Sadra was not a student in the direct line of al-Dawani or the Dashtakis. In fact, it seems that the study of philosophy at Shiraz had died down a bit by the time of Sadra. He certainly knew the works of the earlier Shirazi thinkers, whom he mentions often in his writings, but after a period of self-teaching, he decided to leave the city in search of a master. He wound up in the city of Kazwin, which hosted the court of the great Safavid Shah Abbas. 
This gave him access to the two leading intellectuals of the day, both of whom I mentioned last time, Sheikh Baha'i and Mir Damad. With Sheikh Baha'i, the young Sadra studied the traditional Islamic sciences, that is, law, Quran commentary, and prophetic reports or hadith. Mir Damad instructed him in philosophy, and may also have been one of his teachers in Sufism. Soon enough, Sadra the student became Sadra the teacher. He went back to his home city, but found Shiraz to be unfriendly. He complained bitterly about the criticisms he faced here. This episode has often been exaggerated by historians, in keeping with what we might call the Socrates syndrome, our deep-seated and rather perverse desire to believe that great philosophers must face persecution and repression. As usual, at least in the Islamic world, there isn't much reason to suspect a Socrates syndrome in Sadra's case. Still, he was stung by the hostility he faced there and left before long. Thereafter, he moved around quite a bit, not least in the direction of Mecca, he made the Hajj no fewer than seven times, dying in the midst of his final pilgrimage in the mid-1630s or possibly in 1640. Before then, he was made head of a madrasa back in Shiraz. Here he taught the same range of subjects he had learned from his own teachers, Sheikh Baha'i and Mir Damad. It was also here that he finished writing his philosophical masterpiece, whose complexity and brilliance is only enhanced by the fact that its title could easily have been the name of a Motown singing group. The Four Journeys. Sadra's choice of title connects the work to the Sufi tradition. Ibn Arabi too had spoken of four journeys, naming God as the guide for those who travel from him, to him, in him, and through him. And more recently, the language of four journeys had been used by the elder Dashtaki. The metaphor of a journey is appropriate to Sadra's philosophy, which, as we will see, centers on the dynamism and motion of all things. The first of the four journeys is the one that was already undertaken by Aristotle. We begin with what is familiar to us and work our way up towards divine first principles. But Sadra's journeys unfold along a two-way street. Created things come forth from God like rays from a shining light, so that the path back to the divine is not just a scientific enterprise, but a return home. The talk of shining lights may put us in mind of the Illuminationist tradition, inaugurated by Suhravadi, and this is not misleading. Mullah Sadra takes over many ideas from Suhravadi, though he has a fundamental disagreement with him on the issue of existence, as we'll see shortly. Of course, philosophers had long found it enlightening to use the metaphor of illumination. We can cast our gaze back as far as the metaphor of the sun in Plato's Republic and its use by later ancient Platonists. These Platonists were another main source of inspiration for Sadra, who, like other intellectuals of the Safavid period, was fascinated by texts like the Theology of Aristotle, which he cites frequently. As we know, the Theology is in fact an Arabic version of the writings of Plotinus, the founder of Neoplatonism, but he is happy to cite from it as evidence for the views of Aristotle. Sadra's conviction that all things proceed from a divine first principle and return to it is one example of his deep debt to Neoplatonism. His fascination with such antique sources didn't prevent him from responding to more recent thinkers, though. In The Four Journeys, he often gives us a context for his own ideas by going through and refuting the positions of other philosophers in the Avicennan tradition. Avicenna himself is a nearly constant presence, and Sadra takes time to explain and critique the ideas of authors like Fakhraddin Arazi, Atuzi, and Al-Dawani. 
In fact, along the way, The Four Journeys offers a summary and commentary for the philosophical movements we've been considering in recent episodes, much as Aristotle surveyed the pre-Socratics and Plato. But if Sadra has plenty of guides for his philosophical journey, he is also exploring new territory. His originality centers above all on one fundamental issue, existence. As we've seen, especially in episode 177, arguments over existence had been raging for centuries before Sadra came along. Sadra himself draws a contrast between two basic positions. On the one hand, there are those thinkers who accept what he calls the primacy of essence. These are people who think that existence is a judgment of the mind. Out in the world, we find only things, like a giraffe, without finding the existence of the giraffe as a further item that itself must exist. As we know, this was the position of Suhravadi, among others. It's a bit misleading for Sadra to use the phrase primacy of essence, since in fact Suhravadi thought that essences too are mental constructs. But what Sadra means is clear enough. Suhravadi and like-minded philosophers hold that there are real things outside the mind, but no real existence that would belong to those things. This was also the view adopted by Sadra's own teacher, Mir Damad, and accepted by Sadra himself early in his career. But you don't have to be as tall as a giraffe to grow out of things, and Sadra in due course left behind the primacy of essence to embrace the primacy of existence. He associates this position especially with mystical authors like Ibn Arabi and Al-Kunawi. Primacy of existence means that existence, or being, does have reality outside the mind. In fact, following the lead of the philosophical Sufis, Sadra is happy to say that there is nothing real apart from existence. Despite adopting a diametrically opposed view to Suhravadi on the primacy of essence or existence, Sadra makes enthusiastic use of illuminationist language to express this idea. Existence, he says, just is light, and we can envision all of reality as rays spreading forth from a divine source. God is pure existence and pure light, whereas other things are always limited in their existence or illumination. So, like Suhravadi, Sadra describes created things as suffering from darkness. Like the Sufis, he says that such things are compromised by non-being and privation. They fail to attain the perfect existence that belongs to God alone. And like Avicenna, he says that this is in part because these things are contingent, whereas God is necessary. The primacy of existence is developed at great length in the Four Journeys, but also in other works by Sadra, for instance, a handy little text called The Wisdom of the Throne, which you'll be glad to know has been translated into English. The first section of this treatise provides a nice introduction to his metaphysics, beginning with the difference between God and other things. God is existence itself, whereas other things have various kinds of lack or limitation mingled with their existence. As Al-Kunawi had put it, using more terminology that will be borrowed by Sadra, things other than God are in some way specified, whereas God is the existence that is simple, infinite, and unrestricted. This idea in hand, Sadra is able to provide what must be one of the quickest ever proofs of God's existence. It is simply obvious, he says, that there is existence. As Avicenna too had observed, existence is immediately obvious to the mind, and God is nothing but pure existence, so there is a God. Q, as Euclid might say, ED. If that went a bit too quickly for your taste, Sadra has a further point to add, which is that anything with limited or restricted existence needs some further thing that restricts it. 
So, if we imagine that all things are marked by some form of non-being or darkness, then we would wind up with an infinite regress. Only simple existence can stop the chain of limited things and limiting factors. All this may sound rather sketchy. It will make a bit more sense, though, once we see how Sadra wants to fill it out. Like the ancient Neoplatonists, he understands the first principle to be completely simple and an infinite source of all being. Sadra envisions a chain of beings at increasing distance from God, who is the source of their illumination and existence. The lowest entities are mere physical bodies, followed by more perfect bodies like those of animals and humans, then souls, and between the souls and God, an intelligible world. A note of agreement with Sukhravadi is struck when Sadra explains the nature of this intelligible realm. Like his illustrious illuminationist predecessor, Sadra thinks that Avicenna and other followers of Aristotle were wrong to reject the existence of Platonic forms. The familiar bodily things we see around us are nothing but images of these higher forms or paradigms. With his distinctive flair for fusing ideas from different sources, Sadra goes on to say that these forms are residing in God's very essence. They thus have the same status as the divine names mentioned in the Quran and so celebrated by Ibn Arabi. Sadra agrees with his illustrious Sufi predecessor that God's essence remains completely simple and without qualification, so that the divine names are relations, God's initial manifestation to the created world. In an effort to capture the way that the paradigms begin the process of God's unfolding his divinity out into a universe, Sadra uses the phrase nafas ar-Rahman, or breath of the merciful, yet another borrowing from Ibn Arabi. With all this borrowing going on, devotees of the Descartes syndrome may be downright disappointed. Is this all just a patchwork of old ideas? A bit of Neoplatonic procession and reversion, a few of Suhravadi's platonic forms, alongside motifs from Avicenna and philosophical Sufism? We might think it's like a polyester suit, impressively synthetic but not exactly trendsetting. But reserve judgment for a moment, because we're finally in a position to appreciate Sadra's most characteristic and significant philosophical move in the long-running debate about existence. He uses an old word to express his new idea, tashkik. The term is already found in Avicenna and was deployed more emphatically by Atuzi. Scholars writing about Mullah Sadra have translated tashkik in various ways, systematic ambiguity, modulation, gradation, and intensification. The basic idea is that existence comes in various degrees. Here, Sadra is once again responding, this time critically, to Suhravadi. Suhravadi had imagined degrees of intensity within a certain essence, giving the example of black. All black things are black, but some are blacker than others. At the one end, you have your beloved but badly faded Iron Maiden t-shirt bought in the 1970s. At the other end, the sense of humor expressed in a particularly morbid joke about ravens told by a goth whose favorite song is Paint It Black by the Rolling Stones. Sadra proposes that we can likewise think of the descent of all things from God as occurring along a decreasing scale of intensity. But this time, the variation in intensity will concern existence rather than blackness or any other essence. This makes Suhravadi's imagery of light and darkness particularly apt for expressing Sadra's metaphysics. Things fade in their degree of illumination as they go forth and away from God. Or if you prefer a moister analogy, think of the river imagery with which I began this episode. 
existence pours forth from God, and in a metaphysical version of the trickle-down effect, what is at first a single gushing torrent divides into many smaller rivulets. Whichever metaphor you prefer, lamp or damp, it will nicely capture Sadra's conviction that all of creation is continuous, an unbroken flow that goes forth from its divine source. In holding that all of existence remains connected to God, that to be is continued, if you will, Sadra again signals his agreement with the tradition of philosophical Sufism inaugurated by Ibn Arabi and pursued by authors like Al-Kunawi. But by emphasizing that existence varies in intensity, he avoids a problem that had always faced philosophical Sufis. When you read the treatises of Ibn Arabi and Al-Kunawi, or for that matter the poetry of Arumi, you might easily get the impression that the difference between created things and God is a mere illusion. The mystic is someone who rises above this illusion to grasp what these thinkers called the unity of existence, in Arabic, wahtat al-wujud. Critics of the philosophical Sufis, like Ibn Taymiyyah, rather unfairly accuse them of equating created things, such as themselves, with the mighty god who should be recognized as being exalted above all things. Mullah Sadra wanted to embrace the mystical insight that God is intimately present to all he creates. As the Quran puts it, he is closer to man than his jugular vein. But he was also sensitive to the sort of objection pressed by Ibn Taymiyyah, so he wanted to be absolutely clear that he was not lapsing into monism by asserting the absolute unity of everything with God. The problem is especially acute for Sadra because of a point he takes over from another of his major sources, Suhravardi. Earlier in this episode, I recalled how Suhravardi responded to Avicenna's distinction between essence and existence by denying that the distinction applies to real things out in the world. Rather, we distinguish essence and existence only at the level of our mental judgments. Obviously, Sadra disagrees with this when it comes to existence. For him, there is nothing more real than existence. In fact, nothing real other than existence. But when it comes to essence, he thinks Suhravadi is like a man with $10 hidden in his shoe, right on the money. Essences are nothing but concepts we use to differentiate one thing from another. There are good reasons to insist on this, such as the ones already given by Suhravadi. If I say that essences are really out there in the world, like metaphysical light switches waiting to be turned on, as I put it in an earlier episode, then these essences must in some sense exist before they receive existence. The conceptualist understanding of essences Sadra finds in the Illuminationist tradition helps him avoid that absurdity. But now, we risk falling into a different problem pointed out by Fakhraddin Arazi. Without real essences, there will be no way to differentiate one existent thing from another, and all of existence will lapse into a single unity. It's here that the idea of tashkik, gradation or modulation, really comes into its own. It shows us how existence could in a sense be one, but without eliminating all differentiation, for even if there is nothing but existence, things do differ in terms of the intensity of their existence. All beings other than God have some admixture of non-being or privation, which is why they are lesser in existence than he is. But the variation in intensity is always gradual. If you'll pardon the expression, this is a metaphysics without any gaps, like the metaphysics of classical Neoplatonism. In fact, it goes beyond mere gaplessness by eliminating even the boundaries that separate one sort of existence from another. 
Sure, the world seems to us to be divided up neatly, with some things qualifying as humans and others as giraffes, but the rigid dividing lines are figments of our minds, not features of things out in the world. Out in the world, there is real difference, because of variation in intensity. That difference is, indeed, what gives rise to our different concepts. But where the conceptual essences have firmly drawn boundaries, the intensity of existence out in the world is continuous, like the color spectrum rather than a palette of individual color samples. This may all sound a bit too good to be true. Sadra is having his cake and eating it, able to enjoy the sublime taste offered by the Sufis' unity of existence without giving up Avicenna's fundamental contrast between divine, necessary existence and created, contingent existence. The whole thing turns on the continuity of modulated or gradational existence, so a skeptical response would probably focus on attacking him here. The skeptic could start by complaining that Sadra's acceptance of platonic forms commits him to clear divisions between types of things. After all, Plato introduced his forms, in part, to explain just this fact that different things in the world around us fall into different types. But Sadra has another move he can make here, and I choose the word move quite deliberately. Not only does he think that all existence is marked by continuous variation in intensity, he also thinks that all existence is in constant motion. When we divide it up into essences, we are mentally imposing an artificially static interpretation on existence, a kind of freeze-frame snapshot of something that is in fact constantly changing. We're going to need another episode to get our heads around this idea, so go with the flow and join me for Mula Sadra on Substantial Motion, next time on The History of Philosophy, Without Any Gaps. Thank you.